and welcome to the March 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Hi, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Well, very good. We're here, we're here today sitting around the table uh, talking about something that is, has come to be called fencing the table. Uh, now, we're not talking about the table we're sitting around right now. Nor are we talking about swords, though that would be fun no, to No, it would be fun to fence around the table. The, yes, exactly. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're not going to talk about uh, fencing or tables, uh, but what we're going to talk about is the Lord's Supper and how do we decide when we come to the Lord's Supper, how is it decided who may come and who must stay away? And the, the phrase that has identified this throughout, of ch- throughout church history is this phrase, the fencing of the table. That is, uh, putting up a fence around the table so that only certain people can come to the Lord's Supper, and uh, certain people have to stay away from the Lord's Supper. Now, who and, and how and why and where do we get this? Well, let me start out today by reading... Uh, perhaps the text that plays, the, the biblical text that plays the most into this, and that is from 1 Corinthians 11. And this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, and there's been a, a huge problem in the Corinthian church. They have these love feasts uh, where they where they literally, in their homes, gather around the table, they eat food, they, they enjoy sweet fellowship with one another, and then at the close of the meal, they have the Lord's Supper. Well, what these Corinthians have begun doing is, is dividing wrongly who can come, and they've, they've uh, set special places for certain people who can stay, and other people have to stand out in the hall, and there, there's a real issue, a real problem, uh, where people are not being allowed to come to the table who should be allowed, and people who shouldn't be taking of the Lord's Supper are, are taking of it freely. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 says this. He says, I received from the Lord, this is 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Paul goes on to issue a warning in verse 27. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So in other words, this church is suffering, Physically, judgment, Judgment. because they've been taking of the supper wrongly. Uh, For for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. And the, re- and the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Now, at the end there, you get a sense of what's going on. He says there, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so you'll not come together for judgment. What's happening is they're coming together and they're gorging themselves. Some getting much, way too much, some getting none, none depending on their status in the community. Exactly, exactly, which is, which is a real issue. And so Paul gives us essentially these, these restrictions, these rules on who may come and who may not come. Uh, placing uh, the majority in, of the emphasis on self-examination. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the podcast today, but maybe the, the first question we need to ask, having read 1 Corinthians 11, is the question, what is fencing the table? Well, I mean, I think historically what fencing the table is meant is <clears throat> by the verbal... Uh, by the general discipline of the church and by the verbal instruction of the minister at the time of the distribution of the elements that certain people are encouraged to come to the table. So there's been a debate over time. A good friend of ours who's a minister here in our presbytery um, thinks that fencing is a word that ought not to be used. Instead, it ought to be the invitation. And and I guess you can look at it in, in both ways. It is an invitation, to those who ought to be partaking on that day of it, the Lord's Supper. It's an invitation to all those. This is what the uh, Presbyterian Church in America Book of Church Order says. It's an invitation to all those who profess the true religion. Right, right. So it, and it, are members in good standing of some evangelical or Bible-believing church. Exactly, that, they, that they've identified themselves with the church. In fact, and, I, I've gotten that a lot from, uh, from people who've come to me and say, why do you restrict... Uh, communion to those who have to be a member of a church. Somebody might come to me and say, I'm not a member of any church, but I'm a Christian. Can't I come? Well, the problem with that, I mean, we could have a whole podcast probably about the, the role of membership, and certainly Nine Marks Ministries and Mark Dever have done a good job of reasserting the priority and the importance certainly. of serious membership, um, and that we commend those resources to you. But when you look, um, I don't have the text open in front of me, but when you look at in Hebrews 13, the way that leaders in the church are set up for um, the people is that they're to, to, their lives are to be uh, imitated, and there's to be a submission to those elders of the church, that, they're the, that the general attitude of people towards elders, according to the book of Hebrews, is that we willingly place ourselves under. And if somebody is not willing to be a member of some church, they have not understood Christian discipleship. They haven't understood that part of being a disciple is being a part of a local body where I willingly submit to Christ as he exercises his rule through the plurality of elders in that congregation. To put it, to put it really simply, to become a member of a church is to make Christ your head. Yes, and that's a good way to think to about identify, it. Because the, the, Jesus... Uh, tells us that he is he has founded the church and that the church is his body, which is why I think frequently with adult converts, um, what we find is that people 
are baptized, and that is the initiatory right into their communing membership in the church. Obviously, we have something different with covenant children in the Presbyterian Church, but that's, I think that's the same concept, is that in baptism as an adult, as a pagan convert, um, I'm identifying with Christ in baptism, and that's my entry point into the church and also to the table. Exactly. So there's no distinction there, uh, really. You don't think of... Uh, yourself as having to become a member later if you're converted as an adult. Absolutely. You you become a member when you're baptized. Right. And right. that that should be the, the case. It's it is a sad commentary on the state of the church today that there are Christians floating around who are not members of any church. Right. Who are not committed to a local body. And like you said, we could have an entire. Oh yeah. Um, podcast on membership and its relationship to the ordinary means, and I, I will imagine that we will do that at some point. Uh, but let's continue to answer this question, though. What is fencing the table? Are there different ways that different churches fence the table? For sure. Um, this has been a, a, a friendly, I would say, disagreement throughout church history. Um, generally speaking, the denomination in which John and I are ministers of Presbyterian Church in America, we would... Um, uh, I don't know what the exact name would be historically that people have used, but we would use probably some version of close communion. Not, and then, not closed. Not closed. Communion. Okay, so for example, in a church, uh, a modern branch of Christ's church that would uh, use a closed communion, whom we would consider brothers, Missouri, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, mm-hmm. um, would not um, allow, if we came in, Sean or I, to come to the table because we differ in our view of the relationship of the two natures of Christ. And so they would judge that as substantive enough to keep us from the table in their church. And in that sense, that would be a closed communion. On the other hand, if a Missouri Synod Lutheran uh, member came to our church and they wanted to come to the table, we probably would let them. Um, because the way that we, uh, in the, the PCA at least, um, invite people to the table, as we say, if you're a member of some evangelical Bible-believing church, then we want you to come as long as you're not both professing Christ and living uh, not at peace with your brothers uh, and being willing to, to repent of that. If you're not in some... Um, Unrepented of sin that you're that you're not working on that you're unwilling you know the truth and you're not willing to turn from it that's a problem that you're setting yourself on the on the path of setting aside what was a bare profession uh, if you're unwilling to repent of a sin so open open communion is where anybody can come right if they as long all they have to do is profess Christ they don't have to be a member of a church they don't have to uh, there doesn't have to be any any outward identification. If they consider themselves a Christian, if they have examined themselves and say, hey, I'm a Christian, I can come. That's open communion. Well, that's, there's even a more open communion than that. I've been in a, uh, oh, a church some years ago um, where it, I think it was maybe a Christmas Eve service or something like that, and, the, and it was an absolutely open communion where um, not professing children, uh, anybody from the community could come in. There was absolutely no instruction as to um, who the table was for. It we, was just the table was completely open. But there is an intermediary one in there where, um, it, and this would be generally if you were to attend, I know there's a um, a church in the Northwest that I attend with some family occasionally, and uh, their communion is, is simply, if you're a Christian, come. And there's not a... Um, there's not a sense in which somebody ought to be a member in good standing of some, some church. Yeah, well, which I think is in evangelicalism, I think that's the common understanding of, so. of open communion. Yeah, yeah. Is that if you're a Christian, you may come. Right, right. Now, 
the question, and then and then the opposite of that would be closed communion. Essentially, closed communion, as you said, with in the case with the Missouri Synod Lutherans, is that you must be a member of this church in good standing. This branch of Christ's church. You exactly. could be a member of another Missouri Synod church, not, not necessarily that congregation. Yes, of that denomination. That denomination. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now there are churches that that close it further than that i think of i think of the closed brethren right who it must be in that particular church so there's not there's not now the pca falls in the middle between the two yes uh and we practically use the term close Communion. Now, that term you need to be careful. I know I, we Googled this a little bit earlier, and there were some odd results for close communion right. that sounded more like closed communion right. than right. they did uh, an open. We, uh, I, the PCA's view is, is open in the sense we don't want to forbid a Christian, a true believer, from coming to the table. But we want to make sure that only believers come to the table because right. of the warnings in 1 Corinthians 11. And so what we do is we put as as simple and as straightforward as uh, uh, restriction as we can upon it, and that's simply this, that if you're going to come to the table, if you're visiting with us in our church, and you're going to come to the table when we invite the Christians to come, we want to make sure that you are under someone's authority. Right. We want to make sure that there are pastors responsible for you. And so that's why we want you to be a member in good standing. Not because we think that there has to be, uh, we want to put this additional restriction upon you, but because we want to make sure that somebody is watching out for your soul. Right. And so if somebody comes in and their elders have said to them, you know what, you're you're being disciplined right now by by us and by this church because you've been engaged in this immoral activity. We want them to be able to come and know that they may not come. Absolutely. Until such a time as that is resolved. Right. See that's and the reason for that is one of the one of the means of discipline um, is to restrict people from the Lord's Supper. Because to take the elements in your hand is to say I am living not perfectly, not not uh, not not <laughs> that every sin that I've ever committed has been confessed, but to the best of my knowledge, by the power of the Spirit, out of love for God, I am seeking to turn from my sins. And if somebody's not, then the table's not for them because they're they're in a spot where it's dangerous for them. Uh, they're in the spots that the, some of the Corinthians were, where they came to the table without the right heart, and God judged them. And that's a very grave thing. And so our um, inviting the many but excluding the few who are not qualified is for their own protection. We don't want you to get sick or to be killed by the Lord because you come to the table when you ought not to have. But if you ought to, man, do we want you to come? Because it is, we're serious when we say, this is one of the ordinary means of grace. This is where we meet God in a similar way as when the word's read or when we have prayer, these other means of grace, but in a, in a distinct way in that we see the gospel and God's trying to convince you of his love and his grace that your sins are truly forgiven, that the death you deserve has been taken, and, you, and you, I need that, and I'm assuming that you need that. That means of assurance. Yeah. Uh, the Heidelberg calls the Lord's Supper the sacrament, uh, the sacrament of sanctification. 
that here is where God sanctifies and grows us and builds our faith. Every Christian needs that. Yes. Now, you you had me, uh, you got me thinking about uh, 1 Corinthians 10, just before 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. 11, mm-hmm. where uh, there's a little bit of a, a play on words here, particularly as we call the Lord's Supper communion. Right. Um, we miss some of the significance of that. Uh, here, Paul says, he says, you judge what I say, uh, this is verse 16 of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of, in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, do you catch the significance there? He's saying that this loaf of bread not only represents Christ's physical body that hung on the cross, it also represents the spiritual body that is sitting in the pews right now. And not just ours. Not oh, just not oh, just our yes. church, but but the church worldwide and also the church through the ages. Yes. That it's a communion with these Christians by virtue of their unity with their head, Christ, but also in, in all ages and all over the planet. This is a big deal. It's a, it's a huge deal. And so when you uh, break a piece off that loaf, and we've gone back to this having something bigger that people can break a piece off of, mm-hmm. so that not only can they have that, that symbolism of, of Christ's body being broken, mm-hmm. but also that symbolism of identification. I'm part of something bigger. Yes. And how often, though, is communion treated, and especially where open, where full open communion takes place? You ever went to a Christian college, and we would have communion with everybody in the college, and there'd be these huge tables with the loaves and and the juice, and everybody would come, hmm. and nobody was restricted. There, there were no pastors there. It was simply the leaders of the, uh, the, the leaders of the college. Uh, possibly one of them might have been a pastor. Right. But everybody was invited at this Christian college to come. It was just, it was, it was huge. And th- yet, when they, when we break off that piece of bread, we are identifying ourselves with this uh, body of Christ, with these. Uh, people that we are communing with at this moment and at this time. Uh, and that's a very, very significant thing. And how can we not be a member, as we were saying earlier? Mm-hmm. You know, how can we not be identify ourselves in that full way with them? And if we don't, uh, how can you discipline for example, in that, that's what I was thinking of, is in this case, in this Christian school that I went to, where there's here's thousands of kids, uh, nobody's been told they can't come, everybody can freely come, uh, there's no limitation here on who can come. It's actually wider than the gospel is. It, it's, it is, because who knows if some of these people are even... Converted. Are even Christians. Yeah. The other thing there is that it's a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking that, that though there are thousands of students around me taking communion right now, I remember thinking, it's me and the Lord. Mm-hmm. And 
how often do we do that? How often, even in our churches, do we say, it's me and the Lord. No, I'm breaking off a piece of bread. I'm part of something bigger. It's not just me and the Lord communing right now. Yeah, amen. And that's hard. My, my wife has helped me, I think, as I lead um, in in celebrating the Lord's Supper to, by the way, I participate in it to make it something more than a personal action, but a corporate eating and drinking. Um, and that I think that it's right, as we're eating and drinking, that we're um, not trying to catch people's eyes, but enjoying the fact that we share with our brothers and sisters as we see them eat. We say them identify themselves as sinners, maybe the one we had an argument with this week. And we see them and their belief in the gospel and their trust in Christ in their eating. And it should, as we observe each other and we observe each other believing the same things by our actions, taking the supper, it should bring us together. It should not be just a Jesus and me sort of experience, but instead an, an us experience. Well, ironically, the Jesus and me experience is ultimately dividing. Because uh, what if somebody disagrees with what I think about in my relationship with Jesus? Right. You know, where is that, you know, where is that going to take us? Whereas what communion is driving us towards is unity. And that's what Paul says here in Corinthians, is that this is about unity and you're using it as an opportunity to divide. To divide. Yeah, exactly. Which, and that's not what we're trying to do. Some people might accuse us of that as we uh, give a an invitation to the table that includes some and excludes others. That somebody might say, "Well, you're just you're not being as clu- as inclusive as you should be." I mean, here you're here you're railing in your podcast about excluding people because that's what Corinth did, but that's what you do when you fence the table. And and if that's what you're thinking, our passion is that the, those who come to the table uh, are in agreement with the gospel. And, and Jesus is the one who says, you know, that there is a narrow way. And what we want people to do is the people that are on that, that narrow path, that are going through that one gate, who is Christ? Um, that they're the ones whom Christ is inviting to the table. And we can't invite any others than he does, for it's his table, not ours. And not anybody's in the congregation's. It's not the minister's table. It's not the people's table. It's the table of the Lord. Well, we need to ask the question, who may come and who who may not come. But before we get there, uh, maybe we need to answer this objection. Uh, Does the New Testament teach fencing the table? Did the apostles fence the table? Well, I think when we look at Acts 2 and we see what they gathered around... Um, that there's a hint. Uh, obviously, we don't see something as detailed as what we do in our in Presbyterian Church in America and our Book of Church Order and how it's worked out. We don't see something like that, and I'm not going to try and prove something like that from the Scriptures. But we do see that in Acts 2 that they gathered around something. So if we look at, at Acts 2 and uh, down in the 40s there, 42, I think, um, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There was a body of belief, the apostles' teaching is the way that Acts 2 puts it, that they gathered around as a shared conviction. 
And that's what united them as they came to the table. Absolutely. Is the shared conviction about, um, it, you know, it, what was the apostles' teaching? Well, that's the rest of the New Testament. We learn what the apostles' teaching was in the rest of the New Testament. What they gathered around was uh, obviously this central gospel core to be believed. Uh, and then the subsidiary doctrines that flow from that gospel of Christ. Uh, and so they, there were clearly in Acts, there was an identifiable group um, you, you have uh, also there in the early chapters of Acts these numbers of those who were added to them. So there was a them. Um, we know that there was a them that was considered the body of Christ, those who were under the general discipline of the church because somebody gets kicked out of it earlier in 1 Corinthians, right? And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, no, let him back in. He's repentant. So there was an identifiable group who were um, accepted as professing believers. A, a membership, even. A membership. Yeah. Perhaps not the kind of detail that we have in terms of how we work it out with interviews and things like that. But there was an identifiable group in a location who were those who were on the in. They were considered to be the professing members of the church. And our assumption is those were the ones who were to come to the table. Those who were not believers, Paul's obviously trying to tell us in, in Corinthians that there are people who ought not come. Uh, obviously, if you're going to get judged at the table, you shouldn't come. And so there's there's hints that that's what we're trying to work out in our invitation to the table and our fencing of the table. Um, we're trying to work out what we see in the New Testament. So yeah, I think that there was. There was an identifiable group, and there were some who ought to have come and some who didn't come. And that's what we're trying to work out when we use this verbiage. And there were some even in the membership of the church who shouldn't come. Yeah. Which is which is again another issue we'll need to address. Now in in the process of preparing for this podcast, I, I read uh and listened to some things by some churches who uh who hold to what we've identified as closed communion. Uh where they very, very adamantly say that not only do you have to be a Christian to come, you have to be a member of, of this church, uh, sometimes this denomination. Although the interesting thing is usually churches that practice closed communion, I know I'm going to make a broad generalization here, but generally what I've found is churches that practice closed communion are all by themselves. Solo. Yeah. They're, they're solo. Yeah. And so, but often what these churches will say is is not only do you need to be a member, but you have to hold to a body of teaching. Now, you mentioned that. Right. And we right. would say that that body of teaching is is the gospel, is, right. is what is the truths about justification, sanctification. Now, do we we don't need to understand all of that right. in right. order to come. All we need to do is repent, believe, and be baptized, and we can come. Yes, yes. But what well, do we do, what, what what do, we do if, if some of the people listening are going to come and cross these churches who say, no, you must hold it, you must believe exactly what we believe, and you must do exactly what we do, and, and you must wear your hair the way we wear it and wear the color lipstick. No, wait, on second thought, don't wear lipstick. <laughs> you know, and what do you what do? You do? What, should, should people be leery of churches like that? Yeah, one thing I'd clarify, because I, I think that there's, a, there's, in broadly generalizing, sometimes we can generalize a little bit, a, a little too broadly. Certainly. Most of these churches will not admit a member unless they believe with the doctrine. Yes. But only the members of that church can come to the table in that church. So at least there's some consistency. It's not as though they've got members of the church that they won't let come to the table who are repenting of their sins. At least they make the terms of membership the same terms of communion. Yes. Um, 
But ought that be the terms of membership? Obviously, by Sean and I's affiliation with the Presbyterian Church in America, our terms of membership are that you've got to be a believer in order to be a member in the Presbyterian Church in America. It would be unwise if you don't believe, uh, at least coming to believe, uh, some of the particular tenets of our theology summarized in the Westminster Standards. If it's going to grate on your nerves every Sunday because we're preaching uh, according to how we think the Scriptures teach, and it might not be wise for you to be a member, but hey, if you want to be a fool, we'll probably let you. Um, You're you're saying if somebody, let's say somebody is a... um uh, full gospel, charismatic Methodists of some sort. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, we would. They, if they, they probably t- would not be comfortable. In they a, probably in would a not. Presbyterian Church. Right. But the only, the only tenet in the PCA that we say that people have to have is that to our ascertaining that they uh, appear to be, with good reason, uh, a believer. Now, why do we do that? Well. I asked John this before the podcast if he thought that this was a good general rule, and and I think that this is it. If you're going to see somebody in heaven, you ought to be able to sit down with them at the table today. You ought, and that's an important word there. You ought ought to to be be able able to to sit down at the table with them today. Now, it could be that somebody who you're going to see in heaven uh, is at this particular week— they're, they're not repenting of a particular sin. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, and, and that would be unwise. Or they're, they're at war with somebody else in the church, and they did not go and approach the person before the service, and there's an unresolved conflict, and Jesus, they have not followed Jesus' command to go and be reconciled before they come to worship. And that person is more in the spot of the people in Corinth who may well have been genuine believers, but at that time were not acting like it. Um, but I think where we would differ is that... It, I, at least the the view that that I take of this, and I'll only speak for myself because Sean's may be slightly different, is that um, I think that people ought to come into our church and sit under the teaching of the church, uh, under the teaching of the Word, and over time, if we're accurately teaching the Word, the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word and who illumines the heart is going to help people see, Lord willing, that what's coming out of the pulpit is indeed the Word of God, as the Belgic Confession talks about it. And that we don't require them when they walk in the door to agree with us perfectly before we'll let them come to the table. We realize that God is the one who's at work in people's hearts, and we can't force God to work in somebody convictions that they don't have yet. And so I would feel unjust keeping somebody from the table because God has not yet open their heart to certain truths, and that's essentially where we end up if we have an absolutely closed communion. Now, I can see the safety of it. I can see the wisdom of it. I just don't see, um, I don't see that scripturally we're, we're required to do that. It seems like what Paul sets the requirement out for in 1 Corinthians 11 is that people examine themselves of their belonging to Christ. And that's what our larger catechism talks about, is that that's, who, that's what, where the examining ought to be. If somebody's not under discipline, which is our, our producer here indicated, that's a, that's a work of the eldership of a church, in that the eldership of the church may exclude some people by placing them under discipline because they're unrepentant as a pattern, and they're restricted from the table as a warning that their profession may not be genuine, and that they need to be sobered to the fact that if they're walking in unrepentant sin, they're unrepentant of their sins, this is a dangerous place to be. And we want to keep them from the table because it would be a danger for them to come to the table. So if you come across that teaching of what we're labeling closed communion, um, I think you need to be careful because I think that it, it um, requiring people that they agree with us jot and till on everything, I'm not sure is what Christ requires to come to the table. I think we have to have, to have a humility that if God has given us light in a certain area, uh, we're probably crooked in other areas. 
Other people probably have light in areas that we don't. And there's a humility about this that sometimes I think closed communion doesn't uh, exhibit. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think that what it ends up doing is it makes the gospel not simply repent and believe in Christ. It makes the gospel repent and believe in Christ and study these doctrines and learn these things and agree with these things and come to a point you're it essentially says um, maybe you could say it this way it, it essentially says you have to have a seminary degree before you can take communion in this church right and that simply is not what, what the Bible says yeah and it, it would be sort of the scenario where the thief if, if uh, for some reason he was caught down from the cross could not have been admitted to the table that day because he wouldn't have learned everything. Yeah. And and it's it sort of sets um it, it sets boundaries between the people of God and the grace of God that's found at the table by faith. And that's the that's the danger, I think, is that it keeps it it could keep people from the table when they might well benefit from it. I have a quote here from John Calvin. You may have heard of him. Ah, mm, vaguely. And this is a quote that uh, I found on one of these sites talking about closed communion. Okay. And it's very interesting because I can see how Calvin here could be very easily taken out of context, which is, I think, what this uh, site did. I'm going to read, let me read the quote to you. It says, for everyone, for everyone to be admitted to the Lord's Supper without distinction or selection is a sign of contempt that the Lord cannot endure. That's that's a good that's a good statement. To just blindly let anybody come absolutely is a problem. Yep. Uh, he goes on. He says the Lord Himself distributed the supper to His disciples only. Okay, so Calvin limits it. He says so. Mm-hmm. It must be you must be a disciple of Christ. Therefore, anyone not instructed in the doctrine of the gospel ought not to approach what the Lord has instituted. Very good. Mm-hmm. That if if we don't know the gospel. If we've not believed the gospel, if we've not uh, confessed with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we should not come. But then he says this. He says, no one should be distressed when his Christianity is examined even down to the finest point when he is to be admitted to the Lord's Supper. Now, this came from a practice where the elders of the church would examine the members mm-hmm. and then give them permission to come uh, to come the next time that they had communion. So, for example, in the Puritans, some of the Puritan churches, you actually received a coin. A token, yeah. A token. And, and that token, then, you brought to the next celebration of the Lord's Supper, and you were able to give the token and sit down and participate. Uh, that's a very closed view of communion, Uh, However, he goes on, he says, it should be established as part of the total state and system of discipline that ought to flourish in the church that those who are judged unworthy should not be admitted. In other words, we need to examine our people. It's It's the elder's responsibility to examine our people. Now, here's where I think he gets taken out of context. When he says that you shouldn't be worried about your Christianity being examined down to the finest detail, is he saying that the elders must examine 
every aspect of your life. And if in any area of your life you don't believe exactly the right things or you aren't doing exactly the right things, then you may not come. Is that what Calvin is suggesting? Or is Calvin saying that the, that what the elder is seeking is to ascertain that your profession of faith is true and real from the deepest part of your heart? Right, right. And see, I think Calvin's saying the latter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have, as the, the eldership of our church, um, several people have noted to us after their membership interviews that they considered, quote-unquote, our interview to be the hardest they've ever done. And it's, Shame on you. Well, I, I hope it's not shame on us because most of them actually appreciated it. And, and it wasn't an interview where, you know, we pulled out the Westminster Confession of Faith and we asked them to, you know, regurgitate all the knowledge that they had in a three-hour interview. It was because... We expect we actually, our members to have the entire Shorter Catechism memorized, memorized yes, before memorized, they can come. Yeah. Um, we will ask people when they come, um, what is the sin you are most struggling with right now? And the reason that we ask people that is not because we want to embarrass them, but we do want to pray for them. And we want to find out, do they have that genuine humility before God that has so gripped them that they're aware of their sins that it, before the ones whom Christ has called to shepherd them, they're willing to share that. And I think that it, we tell people ahead of time what we're going to ask them. They know what the questions are. Um, but we want people to know that our regard for them is that great. And if somebody can't answer that question, we have a hint that maybe they're not ready because they're not in that war against sin. If they're not aware of that war against sin, they don't have anything to be repenting of. And that's, a, as our brother Spurgeon instructs us, repentance and faith is not the action of a moment, but the acquisition of a lifestyle. And what we're trying to ascertain is have people gained that disciples, that gospel lifestyle. I even think about the tokens with the Puritans. You made me think of something, is that, you know, suppose your interview was two weeks in advance, but you got in a war with a brother the week before the communion was to be. Okay, so you were good two weeks ago, but if there's not in that moment on that day the examination of yourself, which we're going to talk about in a minute, um, you could still take it wrongly. Even though for the last six months your walk of faith has been great, you could have disqualified yourself that morning on the very way to church by being nasty to your wife and not being willing to repent of it. So the responsibility can never only rest with the eldership. It must also come down to the individual. I think you're absolutely right, and I love that question. Uh, are you what, what sin are you struggling with right now? Because every one of us should be able to answer that. Yes. You know, even if it's you, just our wife, our spouse asking us, that our spouse should be able to say at any point in time to us, what sin are you struggling with right now? And even if your answer is this, the sin I'm struggling with right now is the fact that I don't can't see any sins that I'm struggling with right now. To know that you're struggling with sin is, is such a huge statement of where you are in, in your walk. And you reminded me, we, we both were talking about this. We both uh, brought this up beforehand. This is the Heidelberg Catechism. We should and probably explain what that just, is. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is uh, comes from the the Dutch tradition. Uh, it is one of the um, one of the teachings on uh, on the scriptures, a summary of what the scriptures teach. And it asks this question, and this is where the Heidelberg Catechism 
is is so profoundly heart centered, heart centered, personal. Uh, it just it just nails you right where you're at. My wife calls it the the uh, the woman's catechism. The woman the woman's catechism. Uh, well, I happen to like the woman's catechism. Me too. This is the question. The question it asks is, uh, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? In other words, who gets to take? And and maybe this is where we need to go now is, who can come? Right. Okay. Now, most of us would say, those who've gotten their act together and they're walking great with Christ. That's instantly our moralistic American evangelicalism says, mm. those who have their act together, that's who should come. Okay, now hear the answer. For those, this is for those for whom it is instituted. It is instituted for those who are truly displeased with themselves for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmity is covered by his passion and death, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. You know... Who the Lord's Supper is for, it's for sinners right. yep. who know their sin and who hate it right. with everything in them. It's for and strugglers. Who, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We, 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 we often say that when we invite people to come. We say, this is not a table for perfect people. Mm-hmm. It's a yep. table for sinners. Now, if you're such a, if you are an unrepentant sinner... Uh, you may not come. Right. If you're like one of these uh, men or women, as whoever it was, as the case may be, in Corinth, who was gorging themselves on the food and fine to say, you know what, I'll take your chair, you go sit in the hall, um, I don't want to, you know, I'm of a higher class of Christian than you. Hey, if you're that person, you, you, you shouldn't be coming. If you think... You deserve the Lord's Supper. It's not for you. If you think you're qualified for it, then it's not for you. It's, it, it is the, the qualification. It, to take the Lord's Supper is the declaration of my desperation. That's what you're saying when you take the Lord's Supper, is I'm declaring that I'm desperate, desperately wicked. I have no hope in myself. I need Christ. Why else would you identify yourself with the death of Christ? Right. And that's what we're doing when we come to the table is identifying ourselves with the cross and saying, I need this. Right. We're declaring our need. Right. We're declaring our desperation. Yep. So who can't come? Well, I think that there's there's two categories of people that are, again, our Book of Church order reflecting the Westminster standards reflect. Um, two groups of people ought not come to the table, the ignorant and the unrepentant. And there's good debate over the history of time as to what ignorant means. Sean's, uh, I think, going to pull out a definition here. Uh, Clearly, the unrepentant is that a a person who has not yet professed faith in Christ, while we love them to be in the church, we want them to be under the preaching of the gospel, and especially under the visible preaching of the gospel. We want them to stay. We want them to see that this, uh, the, the, um, the true gravity of what their sin even though they haven't confessed it yet, of what their sin cost Christ in the breaking of his body in punishment for the sins of all, all Christ's people, the pouring out of his blood as the, the death that all of us deserve for our sins. We want them to see the dramaticness, the, the, the drama of the heinousness of sin. 
and that's what's on display in the table, is the love of God and the, the wrath that he has for sin. We want sinners to see that, but we don't want them to take from the table because God may well judge them. Uh, the ignorant are a category that in our doctrinal standards it, people disagree about. Are they ignorant of all of the doctrines of the church? Uh, we have, if you've not picked this up so far in what we've said, we don't think that's the category of the ignorant. We don't uh, believe that everybody's got to rem- got to know the Westminster Standards backwards and forwards and agree with every jot and tittle, or else they're ignorant. That's not our... You mean if you can't define predestination, you could still come? Yes, absolutely. Um, so what does the ignorant mean? Well, I think that there is, uh, in our... Um, in our book of church order and the practice in most of our churches, there's a brief time of instruction before the Lord's Supper to remind people of the nature and the ends of, of the Supper. And there are some people who are new enough to the faith that they've received no instruction on the Lord's Supper at all. And they really could not consciously either examine themselves beforehand or understand what's going on in the Supper. And for those people, that time of ignorance, if they're willing uh, to, to be taught, should be very short. We should have, if people don't sense that they understand the Lord's Supper, that's the very time to have a sermon on the Lord's Supper, to have a question and answer time, to have a time in the pastor's home where people can ask questions and we can go over the excellent catechism questions that we have, especially in the larger catechism, about what the Supper is about and and how you ought to prepare yourself beforehand and what you ought to do in the midst of it and how you ought to reflect on it afterwards. And we may do that in in a later podcast. What's the, can we use this experience? What, or we use this word, what's the experience that you ought to be seeking in coming to the Lord's Supper. You're coming to get grace. One certainly hopes. What does that mean? What does it look like? What are you to be trying to get if you're coming? Um, but so the, the unrepentant shouldn't come and the ignorant, that should be a very small category and it should be for a small period of time. We should get people over their ignorance and get them to the table because they need it. Okay, so an unbeliever can't come. Right. If you have <clears> not <throat> professed faith, you can't come. No. If you are have professed faith... Yet living wickedly. Okay. Yes, that's a category that I missed. Yes. Can you can you come? You you ought not come if you're unrepentant of it, uh, in the sense that your living is, uh, as Puritan used to say, would would give or is giving the lie to your profession. It's now an open question if you're living an unrepentant lifestyle, whether indeed your profession was true or not, and so you ought not come. Um, if you're struggling against your sin, then you ought to come, and that's the difference. Are you struggling or or are you resisting turning from sin? And that's the difference. Because if you're resisting turning from sin, you need to ask yourself, have I acquired this lifestyle of repentance and faith? Um, and it may be that it's only for that week um, that you don't come to the Lord's Supper. This is the tragedy of having the Lord's Supper infrequently. Is if it happens to be that in the course of your life and in your discipleship that you're not prepared that week, and the Lord's Supper only happens three or four or five or six times a year, or even once a month, Man, you're out for a month. And that's the tragedy of an infrequent taking of the Lord's Supper is that here grace is available. It's put out there by God. He wants you to have it. But um, So you ought to get prepared for it. You ought to be seeking by the work of the Spirit to be ready uh, and to not be in unrepentant sin. There's another category, too, of those who cannot come, and that, and those are the children of believers who have not <clears throat> yet made a profession of faith. Even uh, the baptized children of even believers. Even the baptized children of believers, if they have not made a profession of faith. And it, it's interesting, if you just look up uh, that phrase, uh, profess their faith, in the Westminster Confession, it happens over and over and over again. And the confession, rightly, like the Scripture, uh, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth 
Jesus as Lord, the confession sees that as a significant act demonstrating inward justification. Right. Okay? So the child of a believer, the confession tells us, that faith is ordinarily wrought by the Word. Right. So the child of a believer, while we believe that the promises of God are for them, Mm -hmm. we don't automatically assume that those promises are given to them until we see that profession of faith. And so until that time, until our children make a profession before the church, they may not come to the table right? uh, because they don't, uh, they can't, if they can't comprehend the word of God so as to have faith, so too uh, they cannot comprehend the table. Right. Unless they've gotten the gospel... They shouldn't come take the symbols of the gospel in their hand. Exactly. Unless they've been justified, they should not be taking the sacrament of sanctification. Right. Right. It's a good way so, to put it. Which is very important. And it's interesting when you read Calvin. I was reading Calvin just a couple of weeks ago on baptism, particularly on the baptism of infants. Mm-hmm. And he stresses very firmly uh, that, that it's very important that the promises of God are for them, and, and in the same way that uh, in well, Genesis 17 is, is a very interesting example, because in Genesis 17, what happens is that God comes to Abraham, and he tells him that Ishmael will not live before him, that Ishmael will never be a believer. Hmm. that Ishmael will never be in covenant with Abraham's God. Hmm. But that, but then God says to Abraham, but you must give the sign of my covenant to everybody in your household. And so even after Abraham is told that Ishmael will never be a believer, hmm. he circumcises him. And that's, that's very interesting, mm-hmm. because it, it tells us that that sign outwardly can be given to the children of believers, even if we don't know whether or not they're going to be a believer. Because everyone, you know, God doesn't come to us and say, this child of yours is an Ishmael, this child of yours is an Isaac. Right. God doesn't come to us and say, this child of yours is a Jacob, this child of yours is an Esau. He doesn't tell us which ones believe and which ones won't. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, we give them the outward prom- we give them the outward sign, trusting that in the course of time... They will either follow that sign, or they will not follow that sign and do what the Puritans call it, uh, fulfill or improve their baptism. Own the covenant. To own the covenant, to take the promises as theirs, and at that moment, uh, that baptism is completed because that baptism is no longer simply outward, it's now inward. Right, right. Now, Calvin belabors this point because he was in a constant argument with the Anabaptists over this very thing. But it's fascinating that he understood so clearly that even though the promises were given to the children, that they would not, that they were not necessarily, that children did not necessarily have faith because faith is normally wrought by the working of the word. Mm-hmm. And so Calvin, Calvin's phrase by is the spirit he, through the word, by the spirit through the word. And so Calvin, Calvin's phrase then for those who would. Uh, bring their infants to the table, as he said, this is an indiscriminate practice uh, held only by those who have no particle of a brain left. <laughs> In this, you know, this classic Calvin terminology for, you don't get it. Right, right. And the argument often brought to Presbyterians is, well, if you baptize your kids, you, you, might, you should include them in communion. 
And what Calvin clearly points out there is no, because we don't see the connection just as Abraham right. didn't, didn't see the connection uh, between the two. Even children in the Passover mm-hmm. didn't really come. Infants didn't partake. They, mm-hmm. were, they were still at the, at the breast until two, three years. Uh, the children had to go through a process of catechism at the Passover. They had to ask the questions right. and understand the answers, and then they were participating. So, so that's another category mm-hmm. that, w- that we need to be clear about. Is so the, maybe we should take them believers. off again. So the non-professing, even baptized children of believers, yes, um, those living in unrepentant sin, who are at the moment at least putting the lie to their profession, yes, um, those who are ignorant. In that, in, in terms of their their uh, understanding of the Lord's Supper, that should be remedied quickly. Yes. And uh, those who are unrepentant, those who are living in their sin wicked, and unconcerned about it, wicked men. Yeah, wicked may men not come. May not come. Which brings us to the question: Who can come? Now we started to answer this when we read the Heidelberg. Right. Sinners may come. Yes. Sinners saved by grace may absolutely come to the table. Those who are displeased with themselves, who recognize their sin before God, who are living a repentant lifestyle, trusting in Christ alone, that they want to declare their desperateness. Those who should those are the ones who should come. You know, I didn't realize how easy this was. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's who may come. Right. Yeah. It, it's really pretty. And everybody else can't. Right. Um the uh, the our larger catechism asks a question, which I think is great. May one who I'm going to give you the Matt edited version. I started to do this when we were in seminary, and my wife didn't get the old English, and so I would uh, translate on the fly for her. So I'll, I'll give you the Matt edited version here of the Westminster Larger Catechism. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. One who doubts of his being in Christ or his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured. Thereof, and in God's account has it, if he be duly, uh, sorry, I lost my place there. Hold on just a second. Mm, if he be duly hold on, affected with the apprehension of the want of it, meaning you want assurance, and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity, in which case, because promises are made and the sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians. He is to bewail, set it aside, his unbelief, labor to have his doubts resolved, and so doing he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. This is not the place for you to come if you're strong. It's the place to come because you know you're weak. Hmm. Which then asks the question, Who's really responsible for fencing the table? Is it the elders of the church who stand up before you and say, you know, if you're not a believer, don't come? Or is really the person responsible for fencing the table, as Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourself. You are responsible for fencing the table. Mm -hmm. Examine yourself, and if you shouldn't be coming, don't come. But if you need what is offered here and you humbly bow the knee before Christ, then come and take of it. Maybe maybe a good way to close our time then would be to ask the question, how do we examine ourselves? Mm. How, how do we fence ourselves to or from the table? 
Yeah. Well, I think that uh, one of the things that we've done historically in our congregation, although we've done it so much that we've taken a break from it, is the, the question that's previous to that in the larger catechism. Uh, there's a whole catechism answer to this, and the question is... Um, it, the question is this, how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come to it? And let me just read it for you. They that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are before they come to prepare themselves for it by examining themselves of their being in Christ. So ask yourself the question, Saturday night, early Sunday morning, do I know Christ? Of their sins and wants, am I aware of my sins? Am I turning from them? Do I know the ways that I'm falling short of the glory of God? Am I willing to ask those, ask what they are of the Spirit to reveal them to me and to give me the grace to turn from them? Of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, love to God and their brethren, <clears throat> am I living as a disciple? Charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong. Now, that's important. Uh, Jesus talks about, it's uh, Matthew 5, <clears throat> that if you've got something against your brother, drop your gift before you get to the altar and go and be reconciled. And so this is an important area that if you're living in unrepentant sin by living unreconciled to somebody, fix it. Get it done before you come to the table. Forgiving those that have done them wrong of their desires after Christ and of their new obedience and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. There's something to be had at the table, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in depth next month. But I think that what you want to do is it ought to be something that you're getting ready for and you're anticipating that you see it as a formative part of your discipleship and of your sanctification, that you want to hear the promise of God, that you want to have your belief in Christ and in his gospel um, strengthened. And that's why you're coming, because you know you're a weak disciple who needs strength. You mean actually valuing the sacrament as an ordinary means of grace? Absolutely. Absolutely. Spurgeon says this, he gives a list Uh, He says, after self-examination in the Spirit, uh, we ought to come to communion. And he says that this is how we're to come. He says we ought to come with a spirit of holy wonder. Hmm. Secondly, he says we must come with a sense of (laughs) self-abasement. Thirdly, he says we need to come in a spirit of strong desire Fourthly, he says, we need to come to the table with a believing hope. Hmm. And then he says this, and I think this is how we'll close our podcast. I'm going to read this in its entirety. He says, I have only one thing more to say. Come to the communion table resolved that if in the ordinance you do not find your Lord... If in the breaking of bread he is not manifested to you, and if in the pouring forth of the wine you get no taste of his love, you will still trust in him. Do not depend on outward signs and visible evidences, but say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And if his table should yield me no spiritual meat, I will still cleave to my master. And if he will only let me be as a dog beneath his table, I will eat the crumbs that fall there, and so shall I live. For in every crumb of his mercy, there is life everlasting. Hmm. Hmm. Good stuff. Well, thank you for joining us. 
for this March 2007 podcast. We hope you've uh, enjoyed it as much as we have enjoyed talking about it. Uh, We always look forward to hearing your comments. We always enjoy the comments that we hear, uh, that we read there on the blog. Uh, Remember, you can always find us at OrdinaryMeans.com on the web, and there's a quick link there from the site right to the blog where you can leave comments as uh, well as sign up for uh, an RSS feed or uh, for the iTunes feed so that you uh, hear about us right when we come out. Uh, As soon as we've uh, published the latest podcast, you'll have us if you sign up for either of those. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, may the Lord bless you uh, deeply and greatly as you pursue Him through His ordinary means. 